You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. I want to wish everybody a happy Honda days. Let you know it's going to be another Lexus December to remember. Uh, this is that time of the year where um, lots of celebrations ramp up and all the busyness of the holidays um, kind of come in. And we have this thing called Christmas creep where Christmas seems to be expanding and taking over everything. But it's unsurprising that the season leading up to the celebration of Christmas has been hijacked. It's been commercialized. I mean, that's kind of our thing, right? That's what we do. We commercialize like everything we possibly can. But this hijacking and commercialization, this creep, has affected churches in America pretty significantly and in pretty profound ways. And this season, the season of Advent, the season where we're going to block out all the windows and make it really dark in here, kind of hits the nail on the head of what many of us, depending on the tradition that you grew up in and the churches that you grew up in, um, have, have not really been offered and really been given. And it's what I, I hope to be able to offer us and give us because it's been something that's been profoundly meaningful for me, which is, which is some space to say, God, where are you? Some, some space to say, wait, is, is this it? Is this all there is? Is there not somehow more? So um, thankfully, I think, there's a four-day ceasefire going on in Gaza right now. And yet, during the ceasefire, um, I don't remember which news outlet it was, but they interviewed a Palestinian woman in Gaza named Mona. Her nieces and her nephews were among those that have been killed by airstrikes that have been hitting the Gaza Strip, ravaging her home and her family. And here's what she had to say about the ceasefire. What truce can there be after what has happened to us? We are all dead people. A truce will not bring back what we lost, will not heal our hearts or make up for the tears that we've shed. This is Advent. A recognition that, yes, peace in Gaza is a good thing, and I would argue at this point would be an act of God. And yet even any sort of ceasefire, any sort of peace, any sort of reconciliation that we could bring today in the Gaza Strip is not going to bring back the dead. The Hebrew word for peace 
is shalom, right? A word that you're likely familiar with. If you know any Hebrew, it's probably at least that word. We tend to think of peace as like a still, quiet, calm, tranquility, right? I'm picturing like a mindfulness app, and it's always a lake, but I don't know why, but it is a lake, and it's calm, and there's no wind, and it's beautiful, tranquil, peace. Yet the Hebrew word for peace is way more robust than that. It communicates what would better be described as like wholeness, completeness, uh, human flourishing. And it's the wholeness that for a grieving mother, nothing short of resurrection can offer. I know there there are many grieving mothers in this room. There are many grieving would-be mothers in this room. And peace, tranquility, mindfulness, some sort of ceasefire going forward does not heal those wounds. Not fully. Not completely. Nothing short of the reversal of death can bind the wounds of a grieving mother. And so Advent is the recognition that in all of our pain, our loss, our grieving things that we will never have again, or that maybe we never got to have in the first place, we see the meagerness of the human attempts at peace, true peace. And the question that we are asking this morning as we begin to enter into this season is what peace can there be when the wounds of sin and death are gaping wide open in each and every one of us. So before we wade into those waters, let's talk about judgment first. So if you noticed in our text this morning, um, Isaiah has got this really beautiful description of peace planted in the center of our chapter. But on either side of that peace is the judgment of God. And I think that we exist in a world, and probably we are people um, that want peace without judgment. We want the peace of God without the judgment of God, and Isaiah won't let us off the hook. Isaiah insists that God's judgment is, in fact, the means to peace. This section, chapter 25, follows a long, what began essentially in chapter 1, a long series of judgments that are being put against these empires surrounding Israel. And in chapter 24, when we reach this conclusion of this judgment, Isaiah describes the earth itself, its foundations being shook and melting away as the God of the universe enthrones himself upon the earth. God takes his seat upon the throne and the earth is torn down. This is a picture of a God that, if we're honest, we probably find a bit archaic, maybe outdated, maybe even barbaric, if we can be honest. And in Isaiah 25, we're given this final image of peace, this cosmic ultimate picture of a banquet in which death itself is swallowed up and all the peoples of the world will feast at God's table. But on either side of that is judgment. So I want us to ask this question very seriously, personally, individually. Do I really want peace on earth? 
Because I think most of us, what we really want is justice, but we want justice towards everyone else. God, get my enemies. God, don't, don't mess with me, though. But what God's coming does, whether the first advent at Christmas or the second advent that lies in the future, is it confronts us. It tears down the cities that we very well may call home, metaphorically. The places that we found security, meaning, and hope that are not actually God's peace-giving presence. And it's possible that we could experience God's justice as God's judgment. Now, here's what I mean. I'm going to nerd out for just a second on you, and then we'll come back, okay? So so go with me, because this is actually really important. So judgment in Hebrew is actually the same, like, family of language and words as justice. It's also the same family of words as righteousness. So for God to bring justice into the earth is by definition for God to judge, For God to be righteous, to act righteously, necessitates that God act as someone who brings justice into the world, therefore judge. Where we have gotten this so wrong, because we've been taught by a church in many ways that has gotten this so wrong, is that God's enactment of justice, that is his judgment, is never an act of condemnation, but rectification. Right, so let me say it in plain English. God's act of judgment is always work towards making something whole, not destroying it. God's act of judgment is an act of love. And sometimes we might experience that act of love in a painful way. Uh, A friend of mine gave this illustration a couple weeks ago. They were talking about Amos and Amos's judgment uh, passages, which are really beautiful. And, And Amos ends with judgment, 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 and then there's this concluding, like, let justice roll down. And this is the, the famous passage that Martin Luther, Queen, uh, Martin Luther King quotes. quotes. <laughs> so that was, yeah, don't put that on TikTok, please. Um, Martin Luther King quotes in, his, in two of his famous speeches. But he used this illustration that God's judgment is actually just God's presence. That when God shows up, it it can't help but be transformative because God is in the room, because love itself is in the room, because all things good and beautiful, the source of that is, is there in the room. And so what happens is where we're at in relation to God changes how we might experience it. And he uses the illustration of boiling water. So if you are a chef and you cooked um, your Thanksgiving meal, shout out to Patrick, who just continues to do amazing things cooked meal for his whole family. You, you bring a water to a boil and you can take an egg and you can put the egg into the water and the egg is going to harden. But if that same boiling pot of water, you take a potato and you put it inside of that same exact water, that potato softens. So the judgment of God is not necessarily something that is done to us. It is something that we receive by simply entering into the, uh, the loving presence of God. And so as God brings justice for God's people in the earth, in Isaiah 25, the enemies of God's people experience it as judgment, as destruction, 
And if God is going to rid the world of darkness, then that means all of the darkness that we love is going to be ripped from our hands, and that might be a painful experience. So how we experience this depends on where we stand. Are we oppressed? Or are we the oppressor? Are we weak? Or are we strong? Are we greedy? Or are we generous? The judgment of God is only experienced as destructive by those who've embedded themselves in fortresses of sin and death. So as God brings light into the world and those fortresses of sin and death are torn down, will we celebrate and rejoice or will we lament and mourn? Isaiah gives us a picture of true peace. At the center, framed by this judgment, is the goal, is the thing that actually, like the picture of rightness in the world. And it's a beautiful picture, one of the most powerful images in uh, the Old Testament, in my opinion, of peace on earth. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, now the Lord of armies, and I love that Isaiah is using that name for God in this context to describe peace. The Lord of armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. Right, and this is a loaded word in Hebrew. All peoples is not just like a generic thing. It includes the enemies that are on either end of this uh, centered passage here. They're invited to the banquet too. A lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will destroy the covering which is over all peoples. The veil which is stretched over all the nations. Do you, you see what Isaiah's doing here? Hey, look, God's going to deal with the Moabites and the way that they're oppressing you. But do you understand that the Moabites are not actually the enemy? That there is a veil that is stretched out over all nations and over all peoples, and it is that that is my great enemy that I'm coming to conquer. And he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. And he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth, for the Lord God has spoken. And so Isaiah paints this picture of what in the Old Testament is known as Zion, the the temple mount in Jerusalem. This is mountain that symbolizes God's presence in the earth. And it's on this mountain that God says, I'm going to destroy death. So there's something going on here that uh, we're not going to get into the weeds on it, but theologians basically go, hey, wait, this is a prophecy. Isaiah is saying, hey, at some point in the future, this thing is going to happen. What's the thing that he's actually pointing to? And then there's the next question is like, are there, could this be multiple things? Is there like a single thing or could it be like a series of things? And we won't get into the weeds of that. But what I want to suggest to you is that there is in fact a mountain where God has already defeated death. There is a mountain upon which God has been enthroned and the veil of death that stretches over all peoples has actually and really and finally been destroyed. Because it was on a mountain that the God of the universe was nailed to a cross and did not just experience injustice 
and shame and disgrace, but joined us in darkness and death itself. On that mountain, God did not just defeat death, God entered into death with us. And on that mountain, God's judgment came. God's rectification arrived. God's making the world right happened. God swallowed death on that mountain. And the rectification of all things in love burst forth, and sin and death were in fact defeated. And yet, here we are. And it's that reality that Advent invites us into. That yes, death has been defeated, and yet you and I are currently in the process of dying. Merry Christmas. (laughs) So one of the things that I think could be helpful is this idea that there are actually three actors on the stage of the Hebrew or of the scriptures, not just two. So we're good enlightenment uh, people, children of the enlightenment, whether you like it or not, that's the air we breathe. And so we come to the biblical stage and we see two main characters, God and humanity. And our understanding of salvation is played out with these two main characters. It's God's disposition towards humanity and humanity's disposition towards God. And that's really it. There's nothing else to worry about. There are no other main characters This is a problem because what we fail to understand is why is it that humanity continues to not live up to its potential, perpetuating wars and famine and injustice and oppression and all sorts of atrocities. If we could just take an inventory of the most developed human century, what I assume is in the history of humanity, it was actually humanity's bloodiest filled with two world wars, the Holocaust, genocides in Darfur, Rwanda, Cambodia, and Bangladesh, and a man-made Soviet famine, just to name a few. These atrocities alone, named here, account for upwards of 20 million human beings' lives taken. And they didn't just pass peacefully into the night. They ended violently and inhumanely as a result of hatred and greed. The Enlightenment, our advanced ability to reason, has not brought peace into our world, but instead has increased a creative capacity towards destroying other human beings. The scriptures actually help us make sense of this, not by saying, well, human beings are actually filthy pieces of trash. No, the scriptures, what they do is they introduce a third main character. It's actually introduced very, very early on in the scriptures in the form of a serpent. The third actor is the enemy, the enemy of God and the enemy of humanity, sometimes referred to as the serpent, sometimes the deceiver, sometimes the devil, sometimes the prince of the power of the air, the lord of the flies, the prince of darkness, he that shall not be named, making sure you're with me, okay. And it is this malevolent one who stirs animosity and hatred and injustice. And so as Dostoevsky says, right, one who is very personally and intimately acquainted with oppression and injustice and violence says, 
God and the devil are fighting, and the battle is over the human heart. See, we often understand the biblical narrative as, as we are a main agent in the play when actually we seem to be a minor character. We are the ones that God is trying to rescue. And so when we read Isaiah, we can now read it with a different lens. As the walls of our enemies are being destroyed, the cities that are being laid to waste, we realize are not the walls of peoples, but the walls of violence, greed, oppression, and injustice themselves. Everything that those cities stand for, everything that those people groups might have historically bought into is what God is really going after. These fortified, impenetrable fortresses lie in rubble. The city of death itself and all of the powers and forces of the evil one that invented and created them in the first place. And so we see in the midst of this, God's banquet. A feast for all peoples, even those who would make enemies of God. Because all peoples are not the enemy. It's the devil, it's sin, it's death itself. And so until then, we recognize and rightly ask, where is God? In this in-between place as people who are trying to follow Jesus in this world of darkness and death, where is God? We recognize the tension, the earth-shattering reality of God's first coming, and the not yet of Jesus' second arrival And we live in that tension, which, if I can be really honest, is way harder than not living in that tension. If Advent is anything, it is our cry to God, where are you? How long, O Lord, must we wait until you deliver us? We languish here, we suffer. And so I am actually convinced, and this is where, uh, I don't know, I feel like our church is somewhat weird here. Maybe it's just me that's weird, but I'm convinced that the church in general is not a place for shiny, happy people, right? All power to you if you are actually really shiny and happy. Um, But the holiday creep that infects so much of the Western church betrays a theology that leaves no room for longing. There's no room for a mourning mother. There's no room for infertility. There's no room for divorce. There's no room for a terminal diagnosis, miscarriages, stillbirths. There is no room in the glitz and glamor of pop theology for people who live in darkness. There's only room for people who are going to pretend that they're living a victorious life. Pretend that they're not actually dying. Pretend that there actually is no suffering in the world. The experience 
of our lives and the scriptures themselves attest to the fact that we live under the shadow of death. And this was something the earliest followers of Jesus understood really well. And that God had promised to do something about that was something they understood really well. And it allowed them to do these heroic acts of defiance against the empire. Because they knew even if the empire burned them alive, there was a God who raised the dead. That is a profound hope. So Christ has come. And he has liberated us from the present dark and evil age has promised us hope and resurrection in the age to come, and yet we receive and live out that hope with both feet firmly planted in the present evil age, in the realm of the devil, to put it in a medieval sense. And so as we follow Jesus, we do not call dead things alive. We do not call evil things good. Instead, we confront the darkness. We face it. We name it. And as such, by God's grace, we resist it. The evil, the sin, the death, we resist it in our singing, in our gathering, in our living, in our loving, most importantly. And even when the darkness overcomes us, we hope. We hope in a God who has promised us that one day I will remove the shadow of darkness from the world. Because I mentioned Isaiah, uh, right, one of the ways you interpret Isaiah is, was this like a single... Fulfillment, or is this multiple fulfillments? I think Isaiah is very clearly hinting at Calvary in Isaiah 25, but also we recognize that death still is a shadow that we all live in. And so at the same time, I think Isaiah is pointing to another future mountain on which God will reign, another future mountain on which God will actually take away death. And so we, as people who have yet to receive what we have been promised, we live out our hope in this age of death and violence and disrepair. And as such, we are called to be, as Eugene Peterson puts it, a colony of heaven and a country of death. And we, along with Jesus, can die on the first mountain because we know that at the second mountain, death itself is defeated fully and finally. Sin and death no longer have any power over us. And so though we may die here and now in the present evil age, we are assured life in the age, of, age to come. The day when righteousness and shalom will fully and finally dwell. So for many of us, this is like radical. Like, whoa, are you actually saying that Jesus is really going to actually come back and bring peace on earth. Yes. That is our hope. Your hope, friends, is not just, hey, one day you're going to die and it's okay because there's something beyond death and God's going to care for you in that something. That is not your hope. Your hope is embodied bodily. And the hope of the world is embodied. Real, actual, tangible justice in the earth. 
Uh, J.B. Phillips, one of the 20th century's leading translators. You all know him, right? Just kidding. He spent his life translating the scriptures, and he was not known as a conservative theologian. But he says that the scriptures make it clear that Jesus coming back is described in various images as sudden, catastrophic, and decisive. That it will be immediate, violent, and conclusive as God in a sudden event will set the world right fully and finally. And as we're all thrown into the pot of rolling, boiling water, will we soften Will we harden? And so, in the meantime, yes, we absolutely work towards the spreading of God's kingdom and acts of peace and justice. We don't just throw up our hands and go, oh, well. Instead, we live out ways of trying to bring in glimpses and pictures of that final justice by meeting God where God is already at work in the world. But we also recognize that we're fools if we think that the ones who bring justice will be empires or churches like ours. But the crucified God, resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father, from which he will return to judge all people, will fully and finally bring the fullness of justice to the world. And until then, you and I are allowed to recognize and long for and ask God for the type of peace that can raise the dead. So from the darkness, we hope against all hope. And this will mean trusting in the God who raises the dead and calls into existence all things that do not exist, to quote Romans. So... I want to end with this little brief picture as to why this is so important to me. So my wife and I, as many of you have known over the last several years, my wife and I struggled with infertility for a really long time. We were really grateful for a church like Redemption that created space um, for people like us. For people who on Mother's Day, it was not a joyous, happy day. It was actually a very grief-filled, painful day. Um, After eight years of trying to get pregnant, we finally were able to get pregnant. We were apprehensive. We were stressed. We were like, how's this going to work? Everything went well. Um, We went to visit family for Thanksgiving in New Orleans, and for the first time, we told them, hey, we're pregnant. We're excited. We took some photos, did the whole thing. And it was the first time that I really allowed myself to hope after eight years I remember vividly, it was Good Friday morning, sorry, Good Friday morning, Black Friday morning, the other one. <laughs> Should probably get those right as a pastor. We had left New Orleans very early in the morning, um, and it was Black Friday, so all the stores were open. We saw this target out in the middle of whatever small Louisiana town is between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that has a target. Fancy town, because it wasn't just a Walmart, it was a Target, right? And we went in, and uh, we didn't have much money, but we were buying Christmas lights and decorations, and we were just kind of lost in the reality of like, man, this is really happening. And, And that Black Friday was such a 
like hopeful, joyful, delightful like day for me and for Gabby. And then two days later, we went to a routine doctor's appointment. And I've shared this part of the story with y'all. I remember walking in and having this brief thought, this is the first time that I haven't really felt worried about anything. This is the first time I haven't like actively prayed, God, please let everything be okay. And this actual thought entered my head, God would never allow that. God would never, no, God wouldn't do that. We walked in. We saw the images. Um, As I've shared before, how great is our God is softly playing in the background as some cruel twist of fate. We mourned the loss of our first child. So the first time I had really entered into Advent personally and experientially, it was the first time I had really experienced that sort of pain what at the time I would have described as that sort of cruelty from God. How could you let those sets of circumstances line up the way that they did? What Advent gave to me was the recognition and the reality that we still live in a dark and broken world and that God has not promised us that everything's going to be okay and everything's going to work out. And don't worry, all things happen for a reason. Even shades falling down. (laughs) But what that Advent gave me was this. God saying, I am with you in the darkness. I am with you in the darkness. And I will raise the dead. And you can call me naive. You can call me weirdly optimistic. But I fully believe I will embrace that child one day. And I believe, right, that's my own personal. You all have a story. A deep need for resurrection. A deep need for real hope. You do not have to come into this place and pretend like everything's merry and bright and we ate some turkey and we're going to drink some eggnog and it's all fine. It's not fine. That's okay to say that. Jesus makes it clear that you and I are not alone in this darkness. But it is still dark. That God has entered the shadow of death with us. But it is still actually a shadow of death. And he also makes it clear, though God is with us in the darkness, that the darkness will not remain forever. People in darkness will one day see a great light. God is not done. And those of you who weep with me and mourn with me, please know These are words that my wife wrote down shortly after that in her prayer journal as she was grappling with this. 
please know that not all that was lost is lost for good. So we wait and we watch and we hope. Hold on, friends. Because even here, there is joy and hope. Even in this darkness, Jesus is not done with the broken world. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.